0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you've ever had an encounter with a celebrity, you know you can dine out on that story for a long time. On this week's show, we hear from notable writers and chefs in their own right, whose brushes with fame come with a host of tales. We begin with Sean Wilsey whose star-studded childhood was hardly a bed of roses. He's the author of More Curious, a book of essays that examines American identity, often through the lens of food and drink. Although Eugene Walter has been dead for over two decades, the magical life of the mobile-born bon vivant continues to inspire. We vicariously meet Eugene with the help of Donald Goodman and Thomas Head, co-editors of The Happy Table of Eugene Walter. And finally, we get a taste of what 21st century craft service is like from Ann Churchill. She has served as tour chef for a variety of acts, including the Dave Matthews Band, Melissa Etheridge, and Zach Brown. We've got stars in our eyes on this week's Louisiana Eats. Sean Wilsey's childhood in the Bay Area was far from normal. He had extremely affluent parents who exposed him to people and situations that most of us will never find ourselves in.
1: My parents had this salon when I was growing up where they would have largely kind of feminists come and talk about like Gloria Steinem would come, and maybe uh, some Black Panthers would be there, and it was this really like Eldritch Cleaver was sort of a regular guest, and then Alex Haley, the author of Roots, was there so often that he was Uncle Alex to me. And so it was this really bohemian, and yet my parents were, my dad was really wealthy, and my mom had come from Texas, and had been a minister's daughter, and had grown up with zero, and, but it was very beautiful. And so they came together, they formed what seemed like this perfect life and then there was this dramatic divorce where my dad left my mom for her best friend. And my mom initially became quite suicidal and defeated by the whole thing and then pulled out of that by deciding, and she kind of credits me with this, but I was just desperately trying to keep my mom entertained. with ending the cold war she ended up taking children around the world to meet with world leaders and talk about peace and we basically from age 12 to about age 14 went around and met with like every world leader going you know we met with reagan we met with the pope we met with menachem Begin, we met with indira gandhi rajiv gandhi you know the list goes on
0: Stories of these atypical situations filled Sean's first book, a 2005 memoir called Oh, the Glory of it All. In 2014, he published More Curious, a collection of essays that examine American identity. When we spoke with Sean that same year, he reminisced about a food column in his favorite boyhood magazine that inspired his writing career.
1: I'm a big skateboarder and I grew up skating in San Francisco, so it was kind of a natural thing to read Thrasher because it was the bible of skateboarding, and it was largely, when it was about street skating, it was mostly about San Francisco. It's kind of this dirtbag, yet big-hearted, largely photo-based magazine about skateboarding, but there was lots of weird writing in it, especially in the 70s, and the food column was called Scarfing Material, and Scarfing Material exploded and deflated food writing it still feels avant-garde today. The chef, skater that he was, always moved unpredictably between the low and the high. He oh, One of my favorite columns begins like this. Okay, this is what I did. I went to a grocery store across town where I've never been before, and I stole a whole bunch of groceries without getting caught. <laughs> That's the opening of the column. So it, he was this kind of weird outlaw, father figure, mother figure type, because... I mean, the average skater back then, it was like this countercultural thing. And I feel like most of the skaters I knew just didn't have anybody cooking food for them. And your other option, a lot of us were always skating in McDonald's parking lots and eating the worst kind of fast food. So this was this weird thing that made you actually want to go and cook some stuff for yourself. And I remember making somewhat disastrously a lot of the scarf. One of them. Uh, There's a whole recipe for snake and it tells you how to catch the snake and then it suggests that you remove, uh, I guess, like part of the stomach and use the bile in case you have a cold. (laughs) And the guy was always trying out new literary styles, like sometimes he'd write it in a total like noir style, sometimes it would be like a kind of gonzo journalism style. And as a a kid who really wanted to be a writer, this is like the thing that inspired me and made me want to start writing.
0: Sean stayed close to his muse and ended up writing for The New Yorker and editing for McSweeney's Publishing. Years ago, he was living in New York when the September 11th tragedy occurred. Like many things that surround our lives in the aftermath of disaster, Sean found a new meaning and complexity in everyday things.
1: Immediately after 9-11, the first thing I did was put a pot of water on the stove and start making pasta. I lived really pretty close to the World Trade Center, like about 20 blocks away. And I had been out walking my dog and actually seen the smoke coming out of the first tower and then the building go down. And people started migrating up from the financial center towards my neighborhood, which is Little Italy. And a few friends started to show up who had just been stranded and come into the house. and. A lot of people ended up gathering in my apartment. And so I just made everybody food and then ended up doing that on a pretty regular basis. Like people would come over every Sunday night because we were all totally shocked by it and wondered whether life was going to go on in any way or how to just cope with it. You know, everybody knew somebody. There were just lots of personal connections aside from it being like a huge national tragedy and something that just changed the country pretty much forever. And I think that 9-11 just always was sneaking into your life in New York and there was nothing you could really do to get away from it. And that piece recounts how I was making pancakes and then there are all these helicopters that are flying over and you kind of suspect that the helicopters are, were just checking out stuff to make sure that nothing's happening again and Owen my son asked about the helicopters and then we end up changing the subject to well wouldn't it be cool if you could get a remote control helicopter to dump some syrup on your pancakes and he's like but how would you do that dad and I said well you'd use a harness and then he's like what's a harness I was like well that's something to keep you from falling if you're on a building and then you end up just thinking about 9-11 again and then in the course of that same conversation, Owen's like, Dad, what would you call a group of helicopters? And I was like, well, I guess you could call it a flock. And then I was like, do you know what a group of crows is called? And then I'm like, oh God, why am I telling this? And I'm like, oh, it's called a murder. And then it's like, the, there are all these kind of words and ideas that are just on the sidelines of this very innocent, sweet meal, thanks to, thanks to 9-11.
0: But Sean's essays aren't all pensive contemplations. He wants to make you laugh. His piece about Crystal Pepsi did exactly that for me.
1: The 90s were this last decade of innocence and pure possibility in this country. And they began with us winning the Cold War, thanks to my mom in part. And the Internet's getting developed. We knocked the unemployment rate down so low. And there wasn't this diffusion of interest that you have now where anybody can go and follow anything that they're interested in on whatever website they want. It doesn't feel like there's as much of a collective focus on single topics. But then there was that possibility. And I'm really interested in what I think of as kind of our major issue globally, which is you know the environment. And it's like, we're gonna have to pay the piper on this like sooner than a lot of people think. And we knew it back then in the early 90s. It was, there was no question that we had all the information then to make a huge change. And instead of doing that, I just remember that the Clear Craze happened. And the Clear Craze was this marketing campaign that suddenly became a national news event. And it was all about how purity could be expressed through clarity. And then it was every detergent, every soda that you could actually make taste the same and have it be see-through was. And there was this horrifying beverage called Zima that got invented. It was actually Coors invented Zima and they took their weakest lager and they just filtered the living daylights out of it until it had no flavor and no color. And then they added like a little bit of like kind of floor cleanser smell and gave it like this limey vibe. And Zima sold just an unbelievable number of units and barrels in that first year. It was basically like everybody in the country was drinking Zima. And then of course it tanked and it didn't last, but it was really like, it was a huge phenomenon. And it just strikes me as like the perfect example of an obsession with triviality over substance. And after that, it was like a couple of more years of fun and prosperity. And then it was Monica Lewinsky. And then all we wanted to talk about was like what President Clinton had done with the intern. And then it was like, bang, the decade's over. 9-11 happens. We missed our chance. (laughs) And it's like, well, seriously, it's like we had this opportunity to actually be so much more prepared to be a better society And it's not like I'm some do-gooder. I kind of believe really strongly in personal liberty, and people should kind of get to make their own mistakes and decisions. I guess I am a do-gooder, because I really do think that there's a moral responsibility to address things that you know need to be dealt with. And we just failed so miserably in the 90s. Um, You know, I don't know that we're ever going to get another chance like that one.
0: That was Sean Wilsey, speaking with Louisiana Eats in 2014. He's the author of More Curious and Oh, the Glory of It All. Coming up next, we celebrate the centennial of the late Eugene Walter, known as Mobile's Renaissance Man. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home from Crystal Hot Sauce made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt, nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Mobile native Eugene Walker was perhaps best known in food circles as author of the classic time-life cookbook, American Cooking, Southern Style. Although distinctly Southern, Eugene lived most of his life in the cosmopolitan surroundings of New York, Paris, and Rome, where his diverse talents brought him work as a translator, screenwriter, poet, puppeteer, costume designer, and actor. To mark the centennial of his birth in 1921 we reached back into our archives to find our interview with Eugene's literary executor Donald Goodman and food writer Thomas Head. Together they assembled and edited a cookbook that Eugene was working on in the final years of his life, The Happy Table of Eugene Walter, which was published in 2011. Don and Tom, welcome to Louisiana Eats. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. So how in the world do you go about publishing a book when the author himself has been deceased since 1998?
2: Well, Eugene has a sort of a cult following among foodies, and particularly in his hometown of Mobile, Alabama. And when we came across the book, I felt that it had to be published because it appeared that he was working on it at the time of his death and as his literary executor. Anything that he was working on, I want to get published. And I knew that there would be a lot of people in Mobile and throughout the Southeast that would be thrilled to have a new Eugene Walter cookbook available. If you think about the South and old Southern gentlemen, Eugene really did fit that characteristic. Although he was a modern man and he lived right to the cusp of the next century before he died. I always thought of Eugene as being the courtly Southern gentleman. And so as such, he would refer to Mr. Campbell or Mrs. Knox uh, instead of uh, Campbell's soup or Knox's gelatin.
0: Oh, that's funny.
2: Anytime you spent a moment with Eugene, you came away laughing and also being educated. Uh, I can't remember a time that I spent with Eugene that I didn't learn something new, either about mobile, about the world in general, or food specifically.
3: One of the things that we were very conscious of in editing this book was not getting in the way of Eugene's voice, trying to let his personality and his voice shine through in all the introductions to the recipes and all the introductions to the sections of the book.
0: Tom, could you explain the predominance of liquor in the cookbook? Well, when we
3: originally discovered the cookbook among Eugene's papers, the title was Dixie Drinks. He had envisioned a book in three sections, Section 1, cocktail recipes, Section 2, a section on homemade cordials and wines and how to make them, and third, a section on foods that, that involved liquor. Eugene was very conscious of the Prohibition era and the effect that it had on Southern cooking, and he was afraid that all sorts of old recipes that used alcohol were going to be lost Uh, because of that unfortunate time in our history. And so in looking at the book, we found the cocktail section and we found the food section, but we never found the section on homemade wines and cordials. And so in putting the the book together, the emphasis is is about equal, Um, well, perhaps a little bit heavier on food than on drinks in this book. But we decided that the happy table of Eugene Walter was a more appropriate title for what we actually have here than a book called Dixie Drinks because the book is a lot more than drinks recipes
0: I have to say that something I didn't quite catch would would you explain to me about dr. Willoughby
2: (laughs) dr. Willoughby was one of Eugene's aliases that came about when he was very young he used a number of aliases when he was young and started out writing But Dr. Willoughby, Dr. Sebastian Willoughby, was the one that he kept throughout his life. Now, Dr. Willoughby founded the Willoughby Institute, which uh, supported the arts in Mobile. And through Eugene and Dr. Willoughby, uh, Eugene published several books through the Willoughby Foundation.
0: Now, I'm still confused. Was Dr. Willoughby a real person?
2: Well, that's shrouded in mystery because the people that I met in in Mobile when I lived there, many thought that it was an actual person that Eugene had once known. Others thought it was a complete fabrication on Eugene's part. And that's something that has not been resolved. Um, I met a woman who told me, oh, yes, Dr. Willoughby at one time was superintendent of education in Mobile. And another told me that he was director of the Department of Education for the state of Alabama, I really don't know. I have a photograph in Eugene's collection of Dr. Willoughby, and we have his photograph in the book. But if you look very closely at the face, you'll see Eugene Walter behind the makeup and the clothes.
0: Oh, that's great. Now, he had some other alter egos, didn't he? Yes.
3: I I was just going to say that his other alter ego was his personal assistant, who was named Angela Garvey. (laughs) And uh, quite often, if someone wrote Eugene a letter about a legal matter or a financial matter or protesting that the trees hadn't been trimmed or that his lawn hadn't been weeded, they would get a response from Angela Garvey saying that Eugene Walter was entirely too busy to take care of this, but Angela Garvey would take care of it for him.
0: Now, we can find him still alive today in celluloid, can't we?
2: Yes, we can. He was involved with the movie studio Cinecitta in Rome in the 1960s, and that was the heyday of Italian cinema. Anyone that was in, uh, in Italy and in Rome making a movie, Eugene would say, hey, have you got a part for me? So he was in a number of movies that were made in Rome. The most notable was Fellini's Eight and a Half, where he played the American journalist. Few people know that in Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits, Eugene was under the nun's habit and played a mother superior. He was in Gidget Goes to Rome, he was in Sinbad, he was with Ray Milland in a mystery movie. He was in a number of movies, you just have to search them out. But the most notable are the Fellini films, Eight and a Half and Juliet of the Spirits.
0: Well, with that fabulous life that he was leading abroad, why did he finally come home?
2: Uh, there was a movement in Europe in the 1970s. In Italy, it showed up as the Red Brigade, and these were people that were protesting the uh, government and were hoping to bring it down. And a lot of Eugene's American friends told him, well, we're leaving because we think it's just become too dangerous. Well, one day Eugene was out walking the street and there was a demonstration and a policeman came by chasing a demonstrator. Well, his billy club had hit Eugene and knocked out a tooth. Oh dear. So that was unfortunate, but even more unfortunate was the Red Brigade had kidnapped a former prime minister of Italy, had killed him and left his body in the trunk of a car beneath the window of the apartment where Eugene lived. And so as Eugene put it after that discovery, he said, I wonder what they're doing in Mobile. And he decided it was time to leave. And so he packed up and with his cats came back to Mobile.
0: And once he returned to Mobile after, my goodness, almost a quarter century, what was life like for him then
2: it was very difficult he came to a mobile that he didn't recognize he made the statement that he was lost when he came to mobile a lot of his friends had either moved or had died it was difficult because living in Rome he was the center of attention so many people knew him so many people came to his house and when he came to Mobile, he was forgotten. Like you said, he'd been gone for over a quarter century. But typically of Eugene, he quickly became involved in the city's life. He had a column in the Isaiah City News in Mobile where he commented on daily life, on the social scene in Mobile, much as he did when he lived in Rome for the uh, Rome Daily American. Then he began to write uh, another cookbook. He worked on delectable dishes from Termite Hall. Uh, he wrote a number of short stories. He did collections of previously published stories, so he got busy. Like Eugene always told me, "I'm a busy, busy boy," and he was.
0: And what is the legacy of Eugene Walter? I think the
3: backbone of Eugene's cooking is, you know, the Southern cooking that we all would recognize. The cooking that the primarily Anglo-Saxon settlers uh, brought with them from the Virginias down through. Mississippi and Louisiana. But uh, he always calls the cooking of the Gulf Coast a rich gumbo. He's very attentive to the other influences uh, that have shaped the way we cook and eat in the South, Uh, the French and Spanish influences, the Native American influences, the influences of the enslaved African Americans who were brought here. And I think one of the wonderful things about this book is that It becomes a gumbo, and there are a couple of good gumbo recipes in it as well.
0: Don and Tom, I want to thank you all for visiting with us and for bringing us back to the Happy Table of Eugene Walter.
2: Thank you, Poppy. Thanks, Poppy.
0: Donald Goodman and Thomas Head, co-editors of the Happy Table of Eugene Walter. We spoke in 2011. People choose their passions for others their passion chooses them Peter Kaminsky author food critic and TV producer falls into the latter category his passion is fly fishing over the years Peter's interest in fishing has become something of an accidental triumph propelling him to the vanguard of gourmet food criticism when Louisiana Eats met Peter in 2017, he was in New Orleans for the launch of Susan Schott's cookbook anthology, Real Masters. Each page is a vivid celebration of the fishing life, so it's not surprising that Susan would reach out to Peter to compose the book's forward, in which he writes...
4: There are many things that I love about fishing. One of them, maybe not even the most important one, is fish. I also treasure sunset on the water and moonrise over the hills, peanut butter and banana sandwiches wrapped in wax paper, friends I haven't seen for too long yet, whenever we fish, it's as if no time at all has gone by. I thrill at the strong sense, just before a fish hits, that the water is somehow pregnant. I marvel at the towering thunderhead bearing down and the calculation of, how much time do I have before I have to crank up and run for shelter? And at day's end, after the gear's put away and the fish cleaned and gutted, there's the soothing melody of ice in a rocks glass as you pour whiskey in it and the way it catches the firelight as you wait for your cooking coals to whiten over with ash. I am Peter Kaminsky. I live in Brooklyn. I write books, and I cook, and I go for walks, and I like to fish.
0: (laughs) That's a very mild description of exactly who you are. I would like to know how many years have you been writing about food, writing about fishing?
4: Well, here's what happened. I used to be an editor of National Lampoon in those crazy, druggy uh, years of the 70s. And I sort of hit upon fishing just by accident. I went on vacation, and it was freezing in the Florida Keys, so I, I fished. And um, when I was excused from my job at Lampoon, I decided uh, I'd write about the outdoors. And I've always cooked. Um uh, a few years later, I got the assignment to write the outdoors column in the Times, and I always put food in my stories. And uh, one year, I did a year-end story with my old college roommate, and we ate at 21 Club. And... Uh, My daughter and I went out on a a boat. uh, It's called a head boat or a party boat from Coney Island. And we caught blackfish with a man named Jimmy Dolls, who was the walrus keeper at the Coney Islands Aquarium. And I had a dozen blackfish. And I called the chef, who I knew through fishing, and said, uh, if I bring all these blackfish, would you serve them and you can sell the rest? And he said, yeah. And the Times put in, like, must have been a half-page, three-quarters of a page story of... Eddie catching fish, and Mike Lamonaco flipping uh, pans. And uh, I got more letters from that one thing than everything combined in my whole life. So I said, well, maybe I should write about food too. And I got some assignments. I started to write. I wrote some very big stories in New York Magazine. And then they made me the underground gourmet for four years. And um, I went from there basically into writing a lot of cookbooks,
0: you're doing a lot more often than just writing cookbooks, and it makes such sense that you are so adept at co-writing books because that makes you a producer, and you're also a documentary producer.
4: I've done a lot of docs. My brother and two other partners created the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor at the Kennedy Center, and that's on PBS every year. This year we we did Bill Murray. You know, we've done uh, Whoopi, we've done Richard Pryor, we've done uh, Tina Fey and Carol Burnett and George Carlin. And then these last—we got into doing these musical reviews at the White House. Uh, we did one on Ray Charles and one on gospel music and one on the music of Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. And those were very—well, uh, it was wonderful music, and it really— it takes you a month to get over yourself after you've been at the White House.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. And of course, it it's no accident that I'm sure your work at the Kennedy Center caught the Obama's eye, and that's how they knew that you were the man for this. But what was the seed of this Mark Twain Prize for American Humor?
4: My brother and I produced uh, for Showtime and for HBO the Montreal Comedy Festival for a number of years. And every year as part of the big night there, there'd be a tribute to a great comic. It was Milton Berle one year and George Burns one year. Shortly thereafter, I produced the 20th anniversary of People Magazine for ABC and a non-televised tribute to Steven Spielberg at the Museum of the Moving Image. And I couldn't get anybody to be on the People Magazine show. Like we tried like for six weeks to get a letter like through Oprah's hairdresser you know nothing nothing and I got an interview with Ann Stock who was the social secretary at the White House said George Burns it's going to be whatever 96, 97 let's do it make this thing a call at the Mark Twain Prize and do it at the White House and she said great and then there was enough you know uh, just investigations and just stuff happening in the Clinton White House, they kind of just didn't want to have a bunch of off-the-rail comics there.
0: <laughs> really?
4: And, <laughs> and Ann Stock went to the Kennedy Center and uh, said, why don't you come pitch it here? It took I didn't get, even get the sentence out, and they said yes. And then our first uh, person was Richard Pryor, and it went from there.
0: What's your favorite thing about fly fishing? Why is that your passion?
4: I think it's when you do something that captivates you uh, so entirely uh, that time doesn't seem to pass or weigh heavily on you. You're just there. You know, like last winter, I went to this place in the back of the beyond in Patagonia. I mean, 40, 50-mile-an-hour winds. It'd be warm one second. It'd be, you know, 40 degrees the next. It was... Arduous, and you had to cast and cast into this wind all day. Well, you're you're going to catch a 10 to 20 pound rainbow trout, which is a ridiculous animal. But you're not fishing till you're hurt because of success. You're fishing till you're hurt because the conditions are so against you. But there's such a great reward when you uh, hook up.
0: Author. Food critic and TV producer Peter Kaminsky speaking with us in 2017.
3: Bet you going fishing all of the time Baby going fishing too Bet your life, your sweet wife will Catch more fish than you
0: If all this fishing talk is making you want to head for the waters, first, you'd better familiarize yourself with the Louisiana State Fishing Laws. Do you know the legal fishing limits for some of our most sought-after species? Stay tuned, and we'll fill you in on all the details when we come right back.
3: Here's a little tip that I would like to relate. I'm going fishing,
0: yes, am going fishing, poppy tooker and you're listening to louisiana eats edible content for louisiana food lovers louisiana eats is brought to you with major support from louisiana fish fry breadings boils new air fry mixes and more classic louisiana dishes available everywhere and from the saint tammany parish tourist commission Just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at LouisianaNorthShore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What are Louisiana's legal fishing limits for some of our most sought-after species? Size limits do apply, but in general, you can catch and keep up to 25 speckled trout per day. Redfish are limited to five a day, and you can only keep two cobia or red snapper. Have you ever tried Lane or Vermilion Snapper? Maybe you should give those a try because Louisiana laws allow for 20 of those varieties every day. Are you more geographically suited for freshwater fishing than salt? Depending on where your fishing hole is located, you can catch and keep between 5 to 10 largemouth and spotted bass. By the way, you can catch 150 pounds of in-season wild crawfish every day. So get out the rods, the reels, and the fishing licenses. Let's go fishing. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Versatility is the trademark of chef Anne Churchill's business, Karma Kitchen. Anne's vegetarian and vegan creations are so delicious that even the most dedicated carnivores delight in every bite of her food. Highly sought after as a caterer, you can find Anne dishing up her delicacies all over town. But it's on the road where she fine-tuned her mastery of healthy, delicious cuisine. For years, Anne has worked as chef to the stars, fueling traveling music and theater productions. She has served as tour chef for a variety of acts, including the Dave Matthews Band, Melissa Etheridge, and Zach Brown. In 2013, Anne spoke with us about her life on the road as a touring chef and how food became her life. Well, I always loved cooking and...
5: It wasn't really an option as a career path, you know, when I was younger and it was, you know, you'll go to college and you'll do this. And so I did and taught high school for six years and worked in video production and did a number of things, worked in television for a while and always loved cooking and thought, gosh, if I just, I would love to do that for a living, but it just didn't seem feasible. And then I was living in San Francisco, working for Make-A-Wish Foundation and ended up running a marathon raising money for team and training. And I just had this epiphany while I was running because it is a really interesting psychological thing that happens. When you're running 26.2 miles, you have a yeah. lot of time to reflect. <laughs> and these walls kind of broke down and I just thought, well, being scared of stuff's just silly. And so I thought if I wasn't scared of anything, what would I do? And I realized that I'd cook. So, when I moved back here, I applied to Delgado and Worked at Bourbon House as an apprentice when I was in the program and worked at Bayona for Susan Spicer, which was amazing. And then I just went out on my own. I already knew that I wanted to start a catering business. Right as I was starting, Kate and Jane from Bridge Lounge, the former owners, they gave me a call and they said, We really want to do food here. That was a great launching pad. And so I really owe them tremendously for that. It was it got my name out there, and people could come in and taste my food. So after the storm, I, a kitchen became available, and a friend of mine bought the kitchen with the understanding that I would rent it in the Bywater, and it was right around the corner from my house. Set up shop there and just started feeding all the people who didn't have a kitchen anymore, and, and it just went from there. Did food at Bacchanal for a while, and... Yeah, we never know
0: where you're going to turn up next. That's the kind of girl you are. I I like to surprise people. So, Anne, how did you and your food come to the attention of the Dave Matthews Band? I was really fortunate. I already had a little bit of a working relationship with Piety Street Studios,
5: and I live on Piety Street, so I knew them already, and they'd had my food. I um, got to cook for the River in Reverse, Elvis Costello and Ellen Toussaint, when they recorded I got to feed them, which was really exciting. And so there was already a precedent there. And I was at a Christmas party at the Country Club, and Sean Hall said, we might have a band coming in that might need a caterer. and We can't tell you who it is yet. I'm thinking, big band. I'm like, Rolling Stones? What? You know? (laughs) And... They said they might want to bring in their own chef. They haven't decided, but we're trying to tell them they should use you. And I was like, well, worst case scenario, some chef comes in I rent out my kitchen. Yeah. But I thought it would be really fun to cook for whoever this mysterious entity is. And so I was in the kitchen washing my dishes one day, and I get a call, you know. This is Kara from Dave Matthews' band, and my knees went to rubber.
0: Yeah, I bet. And
5: can you send us some menus? And so I did and started cooking for them, and it was a really—they they stayed here for several months and really well, did which a—
0: Which album were they working on? This was
5: Big Whiskey and the Grugrex King, which Big Whiskey is New Orleans, and the Grugrex King is a reference to Leroy, the band member who passed away. So it was a tribute to him in a sense, and he loved New Orleans, so they decided— what a great idea to record here and, you know, support New Orleans in the aftermath of that man-made disaster.
0: So you send off your suggested menus, and do they pick and choose, or do they start to tweak what they want from you right away?
5: They just wanted to feel for what I did, so it was more, oh, she gets it, she'll be able you know, do the kind of food that, that we want. So, I didn't have to stick to any. I got to make it up every day and have fun. So, I got to go to the market and see what was really nice and see what fish purveyors had really nice fish. And um, so, it was really fun. But as a party chef, I didn't have the giant repertoire because, you know, I'd have a bunch of different things I did, but I didn't have to come up with three different entrees every single night and to not repeat them. So that got to be really interesting and fun and sometimes challenging. Like, what am I going to feed them tonight? Oh, my gosh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How did it then occur that they said, come on, Anne, let's go. Um, Well, I was setting up one night
5: and someone said something about a tour chef and I said, what's a tour chef? And they said, oh, those are the chefs that travel around and cook for us. And I said, that's a job. And I think I said a couple (laughs) of expletives, too, Uh, involving kidding me.
0: Yeah, I bet. Um, And they
5: said, you'd be interested? I said, well, yeah. And I was, you know, newly single and and just thought, I could pick up and take off for months at a time. Sure. (laughs) And so they made a call and... I started working for their catering team, so which is uh, four chefs, and a front of house dining room person, and a crew chief, and then someone else who handles stocking the dressing rooms and stocking all the buses and and that
0: sort of thing. How many buses are there in the caravan? Oh gosh, between eight and eleven,
5: depending on the winter tour was bigger and we had more equipment and more people, so
0: that had more buses. But that's, between eight and eleven, that's a wow, lot of buses. yeah, yeah, that's almost like a. That's almost like a train on the road. Well,
5: catering has its own bus, so because there's enough of us, and then there's usually one other person on our bus. And then the band members each have their own bus,
0: the main band members. Wow. Okay, well, walk us through exactly how this works. You go on the road with the band. So where are you doing the cooking? Well, we have in our rider um, that is
5: advanced to the venue. This is the summer tour. The summer tour is outdoors. They're in amphitheater, so we're outdoors. So they're supposed to provide us with a tent of certain diameter, and then that they have to provide us with refrigeration. They provide us with tables, and they provide us with a few prep, cook, dishwasher people, which. On a good day, they're very competent. and on a bad day... You're washing the dishes. (laughs) Sometimes we have to jump in, and that's a bad day is when we have to jump in and wash dishes. Um, We set up the tables and set up the refrigerators, and some things are pre-shopped for breakfast. So the lead chef goes out to the store and buys stuff for lunch and dinner. The remaining three of us show up and get everything ready. Then all these road cases come off of a truck with... Three convection ovens, pots, pans, an entire pantry, a whole front of house with chafing dishes and a giant coffee case. And it's pretty amazing the amount of equipment. And so all that comes out. We set up and organize a kitchen, get power from the venue, set up our ovens. And then we crank out breakfast for about 85 people. <laughs> and keep that going and then the lead chef shows up Fiona and we unload everything and talk about lunch and then crank out lunch and then as soon as lunch is out we talk about dinner and keep lunch going while we get dinner ready and crank dinner out for 5 o'clock and then that goes till 8 or 8.30 how quickly I forget um, <laughs> and then and then we pack everything up and move get on, on, on the, the bus and do it again yeah wow so, were there any disasters? Well, there was this one weather situation in Canadagua. The setup they had for us was not ideal, and there was a giant lightning and thunderstorm, and it was getting water in our cases and blowing things over, and oh, we couldn't set up everything. And so... We had to wing it, and I basically found a little alcove inside and cranked out breakfast while the guys outside tried to wrestle, you know, with flying tarps and and all of that. So that was pretty intense. You know, it's the same with with catering or with restaurants as well. It's just you think you're not going to pull it off, and then all of a sudden you're like, I can't believe I just pulled that off again. (laughs) So there's there's a lot of that. Yeah, that's the food secret.
0: And? Have you come up with any strange stipulations that the band requires? You know, I've heard these rumors about like no brown M and M's. What's the deal with that?
5: So the deal is um, not so much now because most of the venues are established, but when. The first big rock concerts were happening indoors, it created some logistical issues, and the stakes are really high with rigging and setting up equipment and power sources and whether equipment could actually be brought in through the doors. So the tour managers would send out these writers that the venues were supposed to read and follow to the T. So if the tour manager came in and saw that they hadn't sorted out the M&M's, then they knew they hadn't <laughs> read The writer, and they'd often put those towards the end. Ah. So they'd know that they hadn't read to the end of The writer, and that probably their day was going to suck, because the promoter hadn't really done their job. Yeah. So that's really the reason for it. It wasn't primadonna rock stars.
0: Oh, that's All great th- to know. I'm so relieved. <laughs> so tell me, you hear stories about road burnout for the rock stars. Do the rock star chefs get road burnout? Oh, definitely. It's an intense
5: job. It's hard on the body. It can be a little hard on the liver. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're you're in close confines with a lot of people. I mean, you're living on a bus with seven other people, and you work with them for 15 hours a day, and then you're hanging out with them at night. So no matter, I mean, I love all of them, but sometimes, you know, you just yeah. really want to go
0: be by yourself for a little while. Oh, yeah. So, do you have any really special road memories you want to share with us? Gosh, well, some of them I probably can't talk about.
5: (laughs) Okay, Um, (laughs) 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 But people think that it's this this crazy, crazy lifestyle and occasionally there'll be a bus party that's really great where a bunch of people will just hang out on one of the buses and there's lots of music and there's dancing. But it's an intense job where you're working 15 hours a day. So I think it's a lot tamer than people assume. And people assume it's a party every night. And it's a lot more tame.
0: That was Karma Kitchen founder Ann Churchill discussing life as a rock and roll touring chef in
1: 2013.
0: That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. If you've been dying to experience a real drag brunch, our upcoming Halloween drag brunch extravaganza at Tujacs is sure to be a haunting good time. It takes place from 10 till 1 on Sunday, October 31st, Halloween day itself when the quarter will be rocking and the witches will be cackling. For details and reservations, you may reach the restaurant at 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta – Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, for more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to Senior Producer Joe Schreiner and Producer and Special Projects Manager Reggie Morris and to our Business Manager and Social Media Maven Maddie Mullidoux. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.